a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I got to tell you, I'm an old dog, but I am learning new tricks today. And it's just, it's not that easy, but I'm going to persevere. Actually, I, I got to give a shout out and bring you, bring you up to speed here. First of all, I want to give a shout out to my friend, Sean Denovan, who uh, graciously came and helped me put my studio back together. I've been in the process of moving <clears throat> for about five years now. No, actually for, for about the last five weeks. I have been relocating to a secure but undisclosed location, which I've been bragging about on Facebook. So I guess it's not that secure. Nonetheless, uh, it has been a a move that has taken time. It wasn't a simple matter of, well, we packed up one weekend and away we went. And there, there we ended up, you know, just in one fell swoop. No, it involved packing up and moving from Lehigh, Utah into my mom's garage and my in-laws garage and a storage unit and then waiting for a couple more weeks to pass so we could move into the home that uh, we were hoping to get into which we eventually did we started moving in last week so uh, the biggest part of that move at least for me was tearing down my beloved studio with which this uh, this program and and actually a lot of other programs are produced and getting it packed up and sent where it needs to go now, you know, it's it's exciting. It's it's really cool to be able to do this and and to, to have the technology where I can work from pretty much anywhere that I live. But when I tell you that things get complicated, that doesn't even begin to cover it. And I've I've adapted over time. I mean, I've I've learned to to use a lot of technology never thought I would be using. In fact, uh, from from the time I started in radio, oh, long ago, when was it? Almost 37 years ago. There has been so much that's changed, but it's depressing to me how quickly I run up against the the limits of, of how much I know. And that's why I call in friends like Sean. He came graciously, you know, put it together. But now I'm learning to reuse. We, we streamlined the studio. It's really neat. I mean, it, it, it looks amazing. It, it, uh, it functions well. I just have to learn some new habits. <clears throat> I can't push this button here. I can't do it this way because there's there's now a better way. And it turns out I'm kind of kind of stubborn, or at least I'm a creature of habit. I I like the comfort of routine. I want to know that if I do it this way, this is how it's going to be. Nonetheless, it is great to be back on the air from a functioning, now fully capable studio. Looking forward to uh, you know continuing to hold forth and and uh, speak the truth as best I can from this. Wonderful little uh, point of inspiration where I happen to have landed. Thought we could start today by talking a little bit about uh, persuading others that freedom is a viable way of life. Or at least a better way of life than uh, servitude or perpetual childhood. But if you've ever tried this, and I assume that by listening to this program, you're probably someone who has tried this before. You understand very well, it's not very easy. And part of this is because we've all been conditioned from a very young age to believe that people who know best, experts, people in suits, people in uniforms, people in lab coats, should be planning our lives or at least giving us instructions on what we should be able to do. 
Saw a great article from Alan Stevo published this morning on LouRockwell.com. And he says, no, actually, freedom doesn't need a plan. <clears throat> he starts with a letter from a, from a doctor in New York City. This doctor says, Dear Alan, on Saturday afternoon, I went for a long walk in my neighborhood here in the big city. I've been guilty of the indelicate crime of addressing unfamiliar passerby with questions and comments about their mask wearing. Now, he says, I usually get no response and I walk on. But he says, this neighborhood is a melting pot. Among the many ethnicities found here is a large Islamic population, and they appear to be big mask enthusiasts for whatever reason. So when he strolled down a street in one of the more Islamic sections, he says, I came across a surgically masked and hijabed 30-ish woman standing in front of an apartment building. Now, he says, in my admittedly rude tone, I offered, Ahalu Akbar, does God ask you to wear a mask? And he says, I got no reply, and I walked on. But he says, I'd only gotten about three steps before her husband, also surgically masked, rushed out of the building and angrily challenged me for accosting his wife. I told him that he is a free man and that the state could not command him or his family to wear any mask. He was speechless, and other than him tapping me on the chest, he says that was the sum and substance of our interaction. This doctor says, I walked away in peace, and I felt we understood each other. Perhaps the brusque encounter will lead to something positive. There is much at stake. And Alan Stevo, in response, said this. I thought this was worth your time. This is why I want to share it with you. He said, I am here to wake up the lions. I have no stake in waking up the sheep. I have no passion for converting a leftist. I have no love for heated argumentation with a person who has covered their ears, who betrays their heart and corrupts their well-being. And so he says, dear reader, you are a lion I helped wake up. He's speaking to the doctor. Your every meal, <clears throat> sorry, email to me is a reminder of how important my work is to wake up lions. He says, I'm unlikely to begin the conversation you just mentioned. I'm unlikely to ever don a mask the way you did some of these past months to infiltrate and lie low. And he says, I'm unlikely to spend my days making time for those who do not see the evil around us. I'm unlikely to ever have the conversations other, more patient readers like you have. He says, my only work, my only goal is to rouse the lions from their slumber. And if I can do that, the rest will take care of itself. That's my work. And he says, and it may be your work too, but whatever your work is, and however you define it, as respectfully as I can say this, it's not very relevant to me because I know something far more important. If I can wake up lions like you, I've made the world notably more free, not through any planning of my own, but just because wonderful lions like you go through the world living your life. Freedom ripples out from such a life well lived. I love the ring of that, and, and, I, and I, see a, I, I feel a common, a common mission. Waking up the lions. My goal is not to create the biggest amount of followers ever. I just want to wake people up who are then okay to move forward and pursue their own path and do their own thing. When they outgrow me, that's a huge compliment. Because I don't want followers. I want to see those lions wake up, stretch their legs, and go out there and live their lives. Alan Stevo, in his article, says, 
I can talk to 10, maybe 20, maybe 30 people personally in a day and digest what they're saying to me. He says, beyond that, no man is able to do that work. Beyond that, every man expected to do so becomes an albatross to any movement. And so he says, my job is to wake up the lions. Face masks are an opportunity for that. So for that reason, I focus on them. But he says, there's little else that I do. There's little else more wonderful I can be engaged in at this moment in history. So the only planning a lion needs, according to Alan Stevo, is he says, you need to, he says, first of all, I'm going to ask you, what do you want to accomplish? What are the best ways to accomplish it? With those two questions, properly answered, frequently revisited, no evil can be any match for an awoken lion. The feminine is not good or bad. It is one approach. And as a male, it's unsurprisingly not an approach natural to you. So he says, some would criticize this doctor's behavior is too brash. But he says, you'll find no criticism like that from me. My only criticism is on whether or not your strategies are effective. If they are, keep them up. And if they're not, then reform to be the greatest pinnacle of that of you that you can be. See, he understands the value of shaking others out of their slumber. He says, thank you, dear New York reader, for shaking the obedient around you. You cannot know how much it means that another narrative is coming into flesh and blood contact with them, standing its ground, operating with confidence, and perhaps even operating with love. Some would say you should never confront a person you aim to influence. You must approach with agreement, only ever agreement. Such thinking is solidly feminine, very valuable, but its value doesn't make different approaches any less valuable. The heckle is a precursor to getting one's full attention. The fight is a struggle, the, a struggle rather, to the precursor is seeing a, a worthy enemy as worthy. But he says there's honor in a fight. But this era wants you to say that, well, no, fighting is, is dishonorable. That every fight must be had in free speech zones, literal cages, carefully constructed metaphorical bureaucratic cages for containing the disobedient in piles of procedure and paperwork. By the way, Kafka's The Trial is a perfect example of such a bureaucratic cage intended to exasperate the citizen activist long before the citizen activist can move the bureaucracy an inch. Boy, that rings true. He also says no cage is fitting to a free man. So he says, dear roused lion, if you feel the heckle is what accomplishes your aims in this fight, well, by all means, heckle. Heckle as much as you can heckle to accomplish those aims. Of course, I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll come back the other side of the break. I'll share a little bit more from Alan Stevo's excellent article. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us as uh, we are going through this article here from Alan Stevo. This was published on LewRockwell.com earlier today. Marvelous, marvelous piece about uh, why freedom doesn't need a plan. And I, I just identify so strongly with what he's saying. And I hope you don't take offense if I if I refer to you as a lion. But I believe that uh, that like many others, like Alan Stevo, I too am doing what I can to waken the lions. And, and I don't want that to sound like, well, you're just contemptuous then towards sheep. <sighs> Depends. Pushy sheep or the, <clears throat> the sheep that, that go out there and try to force 
other people into doing the the bidding of whoever you know happens to be hurting them around that uh, that can be problematic but for the most part i think people just want to blend in with the herd you know don't draw attention to yourself that way you don't get nipped but i too i'm looking for the lions looking for people who understand that they were not born to wear chains whether they're literal or you know figurative it's not something they should have to deal with. They were born to, to be free. That's, that's God's greatest gift to them. And people who feel strongly enough about that will stand and they'll claim that freedom. Um, I'm going to use Ammon Bundy as an example. Ooh, the hit pieces are starting to flow now. He uh, apparently declared over the weekend that officially he will be running for governor of Idaho. I don't know if Ammon has a chance. I really don't. Based on what I know about the population... I would say hmm, his, his chances of getting elected are somewhere between slim and fat. It's, it's just not, it's not that likely. But there is something very powerful that a lion like Ammon can do. And that is to provide a very clear contrast between the principles and practices of freedom and the, the alternative, which is, I guess, the status quo. What we've been dealing with. I mean, I get it. It's easier to just uh, not make waves, to not get people upset, to to not question what the political class is trying to bless you with. But uh, throughout history, people have had to do it. Oh, what was the quote? Hang on a second. Before I go one step further, I got I got to share with you a quote that a friend had sent me um, from someone who understood a thing or two about about uh, about freedom. And I'm thinking about, uh, what was his name? Oh, Frederick Douglass. Sorry, it's going to take me just a second here to find this. Uh, my good buddy, Chicago Ron, is always sending me great stuff here. And uh, this was one of the best quotes I had seen about uh, about what it takes to, to be truly committed to, to principle and to freedom. Ah, here it is. Frederick Douglass said the constitutional framers were peacemen but they preferred revolution to peaceful submission to bondage. They were quiet men, but they did not shrink from agitating against oppression. They showed forbearance, but they knew it, but that they knew its limits. They believed in order, but not in the order of tyranny. With them, nothing was settled that was not right. With them, justice, liberty, and humanity were final, not slavery and oppression. That's pretty good stuff, right? He also said liberty is meaningless where the right to utter one's thoughts and opinions has ceased to exist. That of all rights is the dread of tyrants. It is the first right of all which they must strike down. That's pretty good stuff. So again, back to Alan Stevo's article about how freedom doesn't need a plan. Sport, he says, is a metaphor for war. Sport is a safe way that society contains and suppresses natural masculine tendencies. Societally, he says, we have no qualms about telling an athlete to leave it all on the field, to walk off the field without an ounce of strength left. Well, the same takes place among warriors in battle. This is quite natural since the risk of death focuses the mind and activates the body beyond anything previously known capable. Great stories are made of such superhuman feats. He says, we should be just as interested in our contemporary warriors leaving everything they have on the battlefield. Everything. He says, your total demise, dear reader, is so much closer than we imagine. Their plans for you are minutes away, hours away, maybe at most days away. 
how effectively they have dismantled the defenses of good men by bringing the fight off any battlefield and into our minds. Everything is needed of you right now to win this fight. Something tells me their best laid plans will never come to fruition. The evil breathing down your neck ready to end you will never be able to do so, because to do so they will need to conquer your mind. To win the victory around you, they need to silence you. And you do not acquiesce to being, to being silenced. No, you roar like a lion. And the panty-wearing men of New York know not what to make of it. If they could just conquer your mind and silence your voice, your demise would come before the next sunrise. So he says, roar all the louder, my good man, and you may even come to lead even he who is ready to fight you. All that is needed for men of this era to be free is for the lions to be roused from their slumber. All else will take care of itself. Now, I understand if this if this strikes you as well, that's all very you know, motivational and everything, but I think this has been true throughout human history. I don't think this is just an aberration, and it only works in this time. I guess that's what I like about Alan Stevo's approach. So, first thing I would ask you to consider is, uh, are you or are you not a lion? And I think if we if we really answer that question from the heart, of course we're lions. We were born for something greater than to be, you know, saddled with somebody else's, you know, saddle and, and spurred along, you know, by them whipping us. I'll have a link to Alan Stevo's article in the show notes at the com. There was another article I saw on kind of a related note here, um, a related area of learned helplessness. And this is how we can, how we've allowed ourselves to become convinced that it's dangerous for the state not to be watching our every move. This is from, uh, this is a great article from the Organic Prepper, and Aiden Tate is the author. It's titled, The State Convinced People It Was Dangerous for Them Not to Be Watched. Aiden Tate says, yet another consequence of 2020 was the growth of public surveillance a.k.a. Big Brother State, disguised under the umbrella of COVID. When you can convince a populace it's dangerous for them to be unobserved, you create the mindset that public surveillance is for the good of all. Now, he says, I work within the security industry. One newer piece of technology we can now install is AI fever monitoring cameras. Many buildings throughout the U.S. now have a camera with thermal capabilities monitoring your every move when you walk in. Should you be deemed somebody with a temperature outside of the preset bounds, the system will use facial recognition to lock on to you. As you travel throughout the facility, security, staff, management is notified. How is this any different from giving a polygraph to to every person without their knowledge or consent? And he asks, is this information the world at large needs to know? Must you tell every business owner from here all your recent health history rather to be admitted into the building? In the future, do I have to recall every medical procedure I've had? Do I also have to report my sexual history, what foods I eat, and other private information before being allowed inside? Consider the invasions of privacy that come from the utilization of thermal technology. The front desk, the front desk staff now knows who has a problem with armpit sweat, how hot your crotch is, whose butt is sweating. But what happens if it's discovered that heart rate is linked to an infectious disease? Will we then incorporate heart rate monitors throughout our facility? He says, I hope you don't get nervous speaking to that person you find attractive. What if an employee who doesn't look like you works the cameras? Or an employee who doesn't like you rather works the cameras. Isn't that a violation of privacy? 
This is, see, is, do you see how quickly something like this could turn into a terrifying experience? What if it's determined that abnormal sweating patterns are associated with an infectious disease? See, the Founding Fathers fully understood the importance of privacy when it came to freedom. It's for this reason that the Fourth Amendment was written. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Aiden Tate asks, is it not a violation of the Fourth Amendment for someone to use a camera to collect your biometrics without your consent? I'll have a link to the article. I would encourage you to take a, take a read and then ponder. How far is too far? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I've been sharing with you a couple of thoughts here from, uh, sorry, I have to look his name, but Aiden Tate from The Organic Prepper and about how we are taught to, to view being surveilled and being watched as if, hey, it's dangerous if they're not watching every move we make. And some of the examples he's giving here, and this is particularly working in the security industry, when he talks about, you know, the idea that, uh, that you know, someone could be watching your temperature as you walk in. I, my, my son actually worked in security, and, and this was one of the things he was assigned to do, was monitor a thermal camera, which monitored the employees of this very, very large business coming in. I mean, there was thousands of people who work for this company, but every one of them had to walk past this camera in order to, you know, make sure they weren't, you know, coming into work with a fever. And if somebody showed up red, if anybody, you know, looked, well, they look like they're a little bit feverish, his job was to stop them, have them fill out a questionnaire, and, you know, essentially they, they were told turn them around and send them home. Now, this is, you know, to, 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 to mitigate against, you know, COVID complications, anybody bringing COVID into the workplace. Still pretty scary stuff. I mean, is it not a violation of the Fourth Amendment for someone to use a camera to collect your biometrics without your consent? At what point does your consent still play into the picture? Are you securing your person and effects in such a case? Or, or do we now subject rights to, uh, or are we subject to rights violations, rather, every time we enter a grocery store or a doctor's office or a gas station? Does modern American society demand our rights be violated so we can live within that society? That really seems to be the question placed before us right now. COVID passports or vaccine passports, rather? Yeah, I think that's part and parcel. By the way, if you want proof that COVID tech was used to monitor the American people uh, during the past year and a half and collect more sensitive data than ever, Here's a, here's a story about Alabama State University purchasing thermal imaging and facial recognition equipped drones to enforce social distancing and masking in public. Some U.S. school districts required their students and staff to wear a Bluetooth armband to monitor their temperature. But the end result of those policies is you have authorities dictating your oxygen intake and whether or not you're allowed to hug your friends. And there's more proof offered in the article. 
And, and you have to ask yourself, what's the end result? Which, which direction is this taking us? I mean, authorities threatening to violate your right to health privacy. Will they then threaten your child with potential kidnapping via social services if you refuse to send your child to school? What's next? Abolition of cash for your health or for control? A lot of food for thought here. Some of it's a little bit scary. Definitely worth considering, though. All right, moving on. Time is running quickly. We've got to we've got to keep moving forward here. I want to talk a little bit about um, elections, and and the question on my mind is: Why should questioning the integrity of a free election be considered borderline criminal behavior? Sheldon Richman, in a piece that was published on EverythingVoluntary.com, asks. Actually, he doesn't ask the question so much as he just actually, he, he questions whether free election is an oxymoron. And so, if you have had some thoughts about uh, not just the last election but elections in general i think you're going to find some some interesting things to consider here he says american leaders and their loyal media pundits love to sit in judgment of other countries elections declaring them fair or rigged according to their seemingly meticulous standards in fact the real standard is that the regimes we like tend to hold free and fair enough elections while the regimes we don't like don't but what about the regimes that we like that hold no elections at all, like Saudi Arabia? They're forgotten whenever the loveliness of democracy is the topic of discussion. Maybe a broader approach would shed light on the matter. He says, we could ask, does any country really have free and fair elections? In other words, could an election be described that way, even if the authorities did not engage in blatant voter or candidate suppression or outright vote fraud? And he says, I'm not trying to be clever here. I'm not one of those people who might say that since free will is an illusion, the idea of a free election must also be an illusion. No, he says free will is real. To borrow a trope from philosopher Etienne Gilson, free always buries its undertakers. Gilson said this about philosophy, though many people think he said it about metaphysics or natural law. What he said applies to these. And Sheldon Richmond says, I'm saying that other features intrinsic to political elections prevent them from being truly free and fair. First, the people who cast votes do so under duress. Not that armed guards or not armed agents of the state literally hold guns onto their heads as they go to the polls. It's more subtle. Opting out of the election is not the same as opting out of the consequences of the election, because the latter cannot be done. Non-voters are subject to the same imposition as voters are, and if the winning candidate raises taxes and interferes with peaceful conduct, everyone will be caught in the net. The only way to escape is literally to leave the jurisdiction which implies that government owns all property. Of course, one cannot leave a jurisdiction without entering another, which will likely have similar impositions. Political competition among jurisdictions may provide some relief at the margin. Now, Richmond says, because of the duress in which people vote, Lysander Spooner acknowledged that a person might vote simply in self-defense. In short, he finds himself, without his consent, so situated that if he used the ballot, he may become a master. If he does not use it, he must become a slave, and he has no other alternative than these two. In self-defense, he attempts the former. Now he says, I'm reminded of Herbert Spencer's sarcastic comment on the popular idea that non-voters are not entitled to complain about the outcome of elections. But Spencer pointed out, according to the conventional wisdom, voters, no matter who they voted for, are not entitled to complain either. Why not? Because those who back the winner can hardly have grounds for dissatisfaction. And those who voted for the loser knew the risks when they chose to participate in the election. 
So everyone must shut up and do what they're told. Oh, how convenient. Sheldon Richmond says we have other grounds for questioning the fairness and freedom of any election. Even if we concede that voters freely elect the office holders by majority rule, ignoring all the obstacles to maverick parties and candidates, can we really say that voters select the policies that the resulting regime will carry out? He says, I don't think so. For one thing, the connection between what candidates say and what they do in office is extremely weak. Candidates are often vague about what they will do, but even when they aren't, voters have no good reason to think the candidate will do more than make symbolic moves in the direction of keeping their promises. Voters have little and mostly no recourse. They can't take back their votes or sue the candidate for breach of promise. Some jurisdictions have recall procedures, but they're expensive and require a majority vote. Voting is like buying a pig in a poke. Another problem is that most voters, most of the time, vote behind a veil of ignorance. It's because they, they, not, they not only don't know what a candidate will do if elected, they also don't understand the issues that governments deal with. For example, if candidates differ on the minimum wage, whether to raise it or to have such a law at all, how are voters who know nothing about economics to make an intelligent choice? They'll be unable to do so, so they'll vote on the basis of feelings, a candidate's campaign skill, or sheer tribal partnership. Now, that's an unreliable way to make good decisions. Sheldon Richmond says the same also goes for foreign policy and any other area in which government officials act. Each of these areas requires study, which requires time and resources. How many people will have the resources, not to mention the inclination, to acquire the knowledge needed to make good choices about all the things candidates promise to do? A final problem is one that most people understand but don't like to talk about, and that is no single vote counts. People who have abstained from voting their whole lives can rest assured that no election would have come out differently had they voted. One thing that tells us is that each individual is free to vote on any basis they like because they know the consequences of that one vote are nil. In that sense, elections are free, but that's not what the democracy advocates mean by free elections. We might call them free and irresponsible. So Sheldon Richmond concludes by saying critics of democracy are often accused of favoring authoritarianism because people think or most people think that's the only alternative. Some people who dislike democracy indeed favor authoritarianism, but that certainly cannot be true of libertarians. The libertarian alternative to democracy is the removal of matters from the political sphere so they can be addressed in the social sphere. That is the sphere of consent, cooperation, and contract, where persuasion replaces force. That's what created human progress in the first place. Yeah, my goal here wasn't really to make you feel you know, terrible about uh, voting or, for that matter, to, to believe that, hey, every election is rigged or the, the last election especially was. I do find it curious, though, that <clears throat> ostensibly we're not supposed to be asking questions about elections as if, oh, this is, you know, if, if you so much as question it, why that, that undermines our democracy. Really? Well, if your democracy is, is that fragile, maybe it doesn't deserve to stick around. I'm just saying that's uh, that's a, that's a pretty weak democracy. If that's all it takes to turn it into, you know, a pile of ashes. I'll have a link to Sheldon Richmond's article in the show notes at the Brian Stay with us. Our final segment is coming up right after these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Is the Brian Hyde Show. Sorry, we are back. <laughs> Some of us a little too early, apparently. Anyway, welcome back to the show. Final segment here for this hour. And among the different things that I wanted to cover... I want to talk a little bit about homeschooling. I saw the funniest meme the other day, and I know for some people this is going to see uh, this is going to seem a little bit insensitive, but but it seemed to make such a perfect point. They had a couple of people talking, a couple of parents, and one of them was saying, "Homeschool? No way! Those kids turn out weird." And then the parent turns and says, "Come on, Timmy, you're going to be late for the bus." And here comes Timmy wearing makeup and a wig and a dress. I mean, hopefully you're laughing, but but the point is. You know, what the world calls weird and what, uh, what, what legitimately could be weird may be two different things. But isn't it interesting that uh, homeschoolers get that bum rap when in reality, they often are entrepreneurs and standouts in, in, in so many ways. There's a great article from the Foundation for Economic Education. Hannah Frankman is the author. And this article talks about how how homeschoolers, three reasons that homeschoolers often become entrepreneurs. I thought this was interesting, and I, I think this squares pretty well with what I have observed personally with homeschoolers. In this case, uh, Hannah Frankman says, I learned the word entrepreneurship when I was 12. I just started my first business, and my mother informed me I was now an entrepreneur. Now, she says, I didn't know what the word meant, but I liked the way it sounded. Even better, she says, I liked having a business. I was selling hand-knitted dolls made from patterns I had designed myself. I sold them for $24 a piece, which at 12 years old was really good money. It would only take four sales to make nearly $100, and $100 significantly upped the balance I scrawled on the lid of my money box. Now, she says, that number excited me when I first got started. Little did I know that I would surpass it many times over in the years I was in business. She says, the money was nice. More importantly, I was learning real-world lessons about life, business, and being opportunistic. Skills that served me well in my future and entrepreneurial ventures, such as breaking into the startup world and becoming a professional development coach. She says, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized how much of an advantage being homeschooled gave me when it came to thinking entrepreneurially. And there are some very tangible reasons why. Reason number one. She was immersed in the business world. She says, I grew up watching my parents engage in business. I'd sit at the kitchen table to do the math in the morning while my mom made lunch a few feet away. In the afternoon, I'd go out with my parents to run errands, and I'd get to watch my mom make transactions at the bank and decisions at the store. Now, Hannah Frankman says, I didn't realize it at the time, but the world of a homeschooler is very different from the world of a public schooler. The world of public school is divided into segments, ages divided by grade, days divided by period, life divided by school versus work versus activities. The world of a homeschooler, on the other hand, is organic. It's all one world, work and play, learning and recreation. The adult world is not a distant thing to be engaged with someday. It's just part of the sandbox kids are playing in on a daily basis. So the connections between people do that and I could do that happen organically. And she says, while the public schooler is stuck in class, the homeschooled kid is home to watch the landscaper pull up and take care of the neighbor's lawn. A possibility is presented to them. Well, what if I did that? A push mower and a weed whacker later, a new landscaping venture is born. 
Now, of course, this doesn't mean a homeschooler can't start a landscaping business, too. Many do, I'm sure. But she says the homeschooler has two distinct advantages. They see opportunities for entrepreneurship more clearly, and the surface area for opportunities to come to them is greater because they're around in the real world and exposed to them. Both of those advantages make a big difference. I think she's on to something here. Secondly, homeschoolers have the freedom to lean into opportunities. She says, back when I was working my first office job, I remember my CEO's homeschooled kids coming into the office to run a bake sale. They'd made the connection that their dad had a bunch of hungry employees, that they had baking skills, and that those two things went well together. They made cookies and Rice Krispie bars and some cute signs and brought them all into the office one Friday around lunchtime. Now, she says, if I remember correctly, they made bank. It's our natural inclination as children to mimic the behavior of others in the real world. Just think about how much small children love toys like cash registers and play kitchens. Little kids tend toward play mimicry. And as kids get older, they start gravitating toward real-world emulation and experimentation. When there's less distinction between things you have to do and things you want to do, between kids' stuff and grown-up stuff, it's much easier for the worlds to blend. And on a practical level, she says homeschooled kids just have more time. If you're not waiting for bells and periods and other students... Your schoolwork actually doesn't take that long. Hannah Frankman says most of the kids I knew growing up could get their work done in two or three hours a day, which left them with the rest of the day to play with. Literally, they could play, they could explore their interests, they could have fun. Number three, she discusses how play evolves into entrepreneurship. Now, she says often it's an organic transition from play to entrepreneurship. Such a fine line that it isn't even discernible to the naked eye. She says, I started my doll-making business by accident. I was just playing with knitting patterns, found an idea that I liked, and made a doll for fun. Then I gave it to my little sister as a present, just for fun. One of the homeschooling moms I knew knew I loved the doll, I knew rather loved the doll, and asked if she could buy one, so I sold her a custom order just for fun. And then I realized, hey, this is a process I could rinse and repeat and make money off of. And slowly my opportunistic tendencies kicked in. But she says it all stemmed from play. Now, there are many valuable things that we're naturally drawn to. But it's only when we're given the freedom to play that we get to explore them, try them out, find how they're valuable, and then make them stick. And since we're just playing, it's always fun. And since it's always fun, we keep going. And since we keep going, we're more likely to succeed. I think Hannah Frankman's right on the money here. And I mean, I, maybe maybe someone much smarter than me could could pick this apart and say, oh, no, no, she's wrong here. And this is why homeschooling is a bad idea. But everything that she describes, there is something I have seen play out before in my own kids' lives. You know, it's been quite a few years since uh, since we have homeschooled our kids. Um, my kids all started out, all four of my, my older kids started out as homeschool students. And the thing that I remember more often than not, this is the part that, uh, that always made me very proud as a dad, was when adults, after talking with my kids, would make the comment, your children are so fun to talk to, or they handle themselves so well in dealing with adults. And I kind of took it for granted. I mean, it wasn't like I was going around, eh, you know, here's another feather for my cap. But I watched my kids after after people had complimented me a couple times on this. I just love how your kids are just they're able to, to talk with adults and interact. And I mean, they're still children. But the point is, they weren't afraid 
to talk to the adults. They weren't afraid to interact, to ask questions, to learn. And I think that served them well. And I understand that there are kids who, you know, maybe they're somewhere on the spectrum or they're just shy or introverted who don't really want to interact with people. And sometimes the structured environment of school might be a better place for them, at least for when it comes to learning. But you think about the school experience that most of us had, and it's, it's a little bit shocking to realize how much of, of our experience in school came down to conditioning. I mean, for the longest time, this is something I remember. I remember that the younger kids, I had a perfect right to look down on them. Why? Well, because they're younger. I'm a second grader. That's only a kindergartner. I mean, you know, if you've ever seen a second grader lording it over a kindergartner, you understand. That's kind of the mindset it creates. We, we have this, this idea that every time a bell rings, I should be doing something. I should stop working. I should start working. I should walk towards the door. I should line up here. I should stand there. Mind you, my wife teaches public school. So this is not a, you know, full-on assault against public schools. But I think having that alternative, and from what I've seen from parents who are serious about homeschooling, the reasons for which they homeschool their kids differ from parent to parent. But one thing that I have observed is those are the parents that nine times out of ten are deeply involved in their student's life. They're making things happen. And that's a good thing. Even public school teachers will tell you, you know what? You want to see your kids succeed? You've got to get involved, mom and dad. You've got to be willing to step up and and be a part of their education. Homeschooling makes that easier. Unschooling is another option. If you haven't checked out Carrie McDonald, go to the Foundation for Economic Education. That's fee.org. Look her up. She's one of their featured writers. Very popular and for a very good reason. Carrie is all about educational choice, and she has been uh, quite instrumental in moving the needle on things like unschooling. All right, I got to wrap things up for now. Please go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com, subscribe to the podcast, check out the show notes, share the articles with friends, consider becoming a patron. And let's talk again soon. This is The Brian Hyde Show.